The past few Sundays, we have been asking the question, who is Jesus? And letting the Scripture answer it for us. And so this morning, if we are going to ask that question again, we, we might get several answers out of these 20 verses. But maybe the most important answer that we would get from this passage is this. Jesus is the one who makes us clean. In Matthew 15, some scribes and Pharisees have come from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. And right away they find fault with Him in what He's allowing His disciples to do. It seems that Jesus has disregarded a very important tradition in uh, their religious system because the disciples are eating with unwashed hands. And so the scribes and the Pharisees approach Jesus and accusingly ask Him in verse number 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, we have to realize that Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience here, and so they would have been very familiar with the significance both of the disciples' actions and of the Pharisees' question. If someone were to ask you today, uh, why did you not wash your hands before you ate? We're going to go downstairs in a little while, and we're going to eat t- together. And um, generally, the bathroom is not full of people trying to wash their hands. Uh, but if you tell your children to do that, uh, you're not doing it uh, for the same reasons that they would have done it in Jesus' time. Ours is more of a hygienic purpose. You've been outside. You've been playing in the dirt. Uh, you've been uh, putting your hands in things that don't need to go inside of your mouth. And so go wash your hands. But when the, when they washed their hands, it was more of a ceremonial washing. It was, it was more because of religious purity rather than just good hygiene. And what's interesting is the tradition of washing the hands that the Pharisees are talking about here is not mentioned in the scripture in the way that they that they understand it. That's why they refer to it there in verse number 2 as the tradition of the elders. See, over the years, the Jews had interpreted and applied what God had commanded them in His Word and in the law, and then they'd come up with a very long list of do's and don'ts. A long list of both acceptable behaviors and unacceptable behaviors. And what they were intending to do was kind of fence around the law to protect God's law from being broken. And so these, these, uh, these oral commands, they were passed down, uh, just by word of mouth. And later it became known as the Mishnah. But they were passed down and they were intended to keep God's people from breaking through that and breaking God's laws. So they, these traditions were meant to keep God's laws from being broken, but over the years, as we see, if we're paying attention in Matthew 15, that they had greatly determined everyday conduct in life. They had greatly affected and influenced how people behaved on a day-to-day basis. See, according to this tradition, uh, to eat with unwashed hands defiled a person. And really, that's the question of, of, the, of the whole passage here, is what defiles a person? Your Bible might even say that if you have little subheadings uh, over the paragraphs there. If you know your Old Testament history, you, you know that the Jews had a very strict dietary laws in which God prevented them from eating certain kinds of food. And God had separated Israel from the other nations of the world 
And one of the marks of that separation was that they were not allowed to eat certain foods. Pork and shrimp, bacon, uh, anything that really tastes good, they were pretty much prohibited, prohibited from, and they ate, they, ate, uh, they ate other things. And so I'm very thankful for many reasons, but that is on the list that I am not uh, Old Testament Jew. To eat these unclean foods would defile them. You read in Leviticus 11, uh, we, we see a lot of the, a lot of the uh, teaching on these unclean foods. To be defiled then meant that they were unable, they were unclean before God. They were unable to presence. They were, um, they were impure. To be defiled was, uh, to be seen as unholy, as unpleasing to God. And so the tradition that we're talking about in Matthew 15 took that that teaching about not eating certain foods, and it went way beyond it by saying that not only must you take care to avoid consuming certain foods, you must also take care to avoid consuming anything that might defile you. You remember when Jesus was talking about the Pharisees in another in another place? He said, uh, you strain at a gnat. They would strain their, their tea or their water just to make sure that they didn't eat a gnat because a gnat was on the unclean food list. And so they were very careful to do that. And Jesus said, uh, you, you, you omitted the, the weightier matters of the law. He says, you, you pay attention to these things, but you've missed the big stuff. And he said, you, you shouldn't stop doing this and do the big stuff. You should just be doing all of that. Well, and that's, that's how seriously they took these dietary laws. And, and so that's how, that's why the tradition was so important to them, which is why we have this, this very accusing question in verse number two. Why aren't you washing your hands before you eat? This is more of a, that's dirty and gross. You've become impure. And Jesus, by allowing his disciples to do this, is guilty of it himself. He's bucking the tradition and he is allowing them to do things that is considered defiling. And this is where the hand-washing came in. From the Pharisees' perspective, to eat with unwashed hands made someone impure and defiled, therefore displeasing to God and thereby unable to stand before Him. It's important that you recognize that. From their perspective, by eating these things or by eating with unwashed hands made them defiled, made them impure. So then the accusation leveled by the scribes and the Pharisees is a very serious one. But notice that Jesus doesn't directly answer that question. He loves to do this. He answers a question with another question. He throws it back on them and says, will you answer something for me? And he will answer the question at the very end, as we read in verse number 20, but first, he's going to address their flawed understanding. Instead, he accuses them of doing something far worse than the accusation they've made against him. Look at verse 3. He says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Notice they said, why do you break the tradition of the elders? And he says, why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. So when they accuse Jesus of breaking man's tradition, Jesus points back and says, well, you're breaking God's command in favor of the tradition. He goes on to explain this in verse number four. He says, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. That's from Exodus 12. That's part of the Ten Commandments. 
And, and then he says, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's from Exodus 21. Another part of that is surely die the death. Dishonoring your, your parents, uh, was a, was a mortal sin. And they, they were, they were killed for that. Uh, and, and Jesus says, okay, the Bible says this, or the Old Testament, the law says these two things. But notice, verse 5, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. So he's quoting back to them their tradition, their this oral tradition that they've passed down. He says, okay, this is what God said. This is what you say. And then he's going to show how they conflict, how they contradict one another. See, there's a fundamental flaw in their practice. And Jesus points out that by holding so strongly to their tradition, they actually invalidate God's commands. In his example here, Jesus said that God commanded his people to honor their parents. But by the tradition of the elders, it was possible to get around that command through the practice of what's called Corban. If you're familiar with your Gospels, then you might recognize that term. So get understand what's, what, what's being required here. Children are required to take care of their parents as they, as they age and make sure that they have, uh, what they need. As they get older, they're, they're making sure that they, maybe they move in with them or they, uh, they, 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 you know, go by and visit and make sure that mom has got all the things that she needs or dad can, you know, get all the things done that he normally wouldn't, he can't do now because of his age or his health or whatever it may be. And that's, that's how they were recognizing to honor their parents. But this Corbin practice, was like a little loophole in that. And read from one, uh, one scholar wrote it and explained it. He says, the Corbin practice in view is that of pledging money or other material resources to the temple to be paid upon one's death. These funds could therefore not be transferred to anyone else, but could still be used for one's own benefit while one was still alive. It's very interesting. So while I'm still alive, I can take all of my money and donate it. I can will it to the temple. Let's put it in our vernacular. And I can will it all to the church, though I'm not dead yet. And now I can't give it to you. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. All my money is going to the church. But until I die, I have control of that. But I don't have to help you now. And I get to look good and pious and religious while not having to help my parents. This practice allowed them to sidestep their responsibility to their parents by allocating all of their wealth to God. This loophole then released them of financial obligations to their family and allowed them to look good in the process. And Jesus points to this common practice as evidence that for the sake of their tradition, they had made void the Word of God. And notice here that he doesn't specifically condemn the washing of hands. He doesn't specifically condemn this practice of Corbin. But he's, he's denouncing the people. He's condemning these people who have elevated it above God's law. And in this way, making it void. So he continues in verse 7. Notice, he'll, he'll call them three different things. One to their face and two uh, he'll refer to them as. In verse 7, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. 
We go back several hundred years to the time of Isaiah the prophet. He had prophesied long ago of his generation of Israel who had become solely external in their worship of God. It was all ritual. It was all outward appearance. Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 29.13 and it reads, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Israel at this time, during Isaiah's time, was in a place spiritually where they were just going through the motions of worship. Their heart wasn't in it. They didn't mean any of it. They were just doing it. And they did it faithfully, but it didn't mean anything. And they treated the teachings of men like they were God's words, effectively replacing His commands with their own. And Jesus says that Isaiah is not just speaking of his own generation, he's speaking of the present one too. This generation was guilty of the same sins of several hundred years ago. D.A. Carson wrote that the Jews of Jesus' day thought of themselves as preserving ancient traditions. But Jesus said that what they were actually preserving was the spirit of those whom Isaiah criticized long before. So Jesus calls them hypocrites, first, because their worship is merely external, and secondly, because their doctrine is based on man's words, not God's, yet treated as if it was God's. And Jesus calls this kind of worship that is characterized by distant hearts and man-based doctrine, he calls it empty, void, worthless. But then Jesus calls the people to himself in in verse number 10. Those who were nearby, they were standing around hearing this exchange. He says in verse number 10, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. In other words, a person is not defiled or made unclean by what he puts in his body, but by what comes out of his body or out of his mouth. And as soon as we read of Jesus' response to Peter's request in in a few verses for further clarification, we learn that Jesus expected this to be enough explanation to understand what he was teaching. The person is not made unclean by the things that he eats or drinks. What makes a person unclean or defiled is what is already inside him. It seems the Pharisees understood some of this at least because verse number 12 tells us that they got offended by it. Uh, and, and this is one of Matthew's favorite words to use. It's the scandalizo word. All the way back, we've, we've seen it so many times before. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me, is not offended by me, does not stumble over me. They did it time and time again. And once again, they stumble at his saying. But then when Peter comes to Jesus and says, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus says in verse number 13, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So back in verse 7, he calls them hypocrites. And now he calls them plants that were not planted by the Father. Now, there are several previous passages come to mind as we have been moving through Matthew, and maybe your mind is, is, is running to some of them. But think about the reader's that Matthew was originally writing to. 
Matthew's readers might recall John the Baptist's words in chapter 3 when he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Maybe they remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7. He says, You will recognize them by their fruits. And every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Most recently, they might remember the parable in chapter 13 of the man who sowed good seed in his field, but then his enemy snuck in at night and sowed tares among the wheat. And at the harvest time, the man, the sower, will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. Here in verse 13, Jesus says it, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. They are plants, but they're not from my Father. But not only does He call them this, He calls them blind guides. He says that they are blind men who are leading other blind men Right into a pit. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 17, about those who call themselves a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent but they because they are instructed from the law and they are sure that they themselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And that describes these religious leaders who prided themselves on knowing the law and being able to interpret it and teach it to other people. But interpreting the law doesn't mean you understand the law. Just because you teach the law doesn't mean you got it right. These great teachers of the law saw themselves as ones who could see the truths of God in the Scriptures. But Jesus said they're blind. They can't see. They're headed for their own destruction. And all those who follow after them will fall into a pit. In another place, Jesus said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So then Peter comes later and asks Jesus to explain this parable to the disciples. And look in verse 16, Jesus says, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. See, everything that goes into the mouth eventually comes back out. But what really defiles a person is what comes out of his heart. The Pharisees' attitude, according to their tradition, was that eating with dirty hands made someone unclean. But Jesus was teaching that what comes out of a person's heart makes him unclean and unable to stand before God. See, holiness and righteousness isn't in what you do or don't eat or drink. It's determined by what's on the inside, what's in the heart. And the condition of the heart is revealed by what a person thinks 
and says and does. Very simply, as Carson puts it, what ultimately defiles a man is what he really is. And the issue in this story, as I said, is about defilement. What makes a person unholy or impure? The Pharisees, following human teaching and tradition, say that a person defiles himself by eating unclean things. Jesus says, a person isn't defiled by what he eats, but what is already in his heart. And he lists these things. Sexual immorality, evil speech, wicked thoughts. This isn't a comprehensive list of sins, but it is sufficient to condemn every single one of us. Back in Matthew 5, remember Jesus equated lust with adultery, anger with murder. In Mark's Gospel, Mark records more sins that Jesus actually said in this this, uh, teaching to the disciples. He records more things like deceit, coveting, pride. Needless to say, we are all found with defiled hearts. Nobody is innocent. We are all impure. We are all defiled. Nobody can please God. From the pharisaical perspective, a person needed to maintain holiness by avoiding certain things. But Jesus explains that no one's clean to begin with. And it's apparent by what comes out of our hearts. We have to realize that none of us can stand before God on His own. The religious acts that we do don't make us clean any more than the food we eat makes us unclean. Our hearts are evil. They prevent us from being in God's presence. We cannot stand before God. But that's why Jesus came. To redeem sinners who have wicked and defiled hearts. Through his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, defiled hearts can be washed clean and made new. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Not in the religious works that you do. Not in your church attendance. Not in the the nice things that you do for those around you. But in His grace, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul, unclean. Will be washed in the blood of the Lamb. How can you be washed in the blood? How can you be cleansed of your sin and made fit to stand before God and seen as righteous and pure and holy? You can't do it through any work of your own. Religion will tell you, work hard. Make sacrifices. Do good things. Show God that you're sincere. But the psalmist says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, God desires for people to come to Him 
with broken hearts, who confess the truth about their sin. See, the people in Isaiah's day, as well as the Pharisees of Jesus' day, were concerned with maintaining something they had never achieved in the first place. Worshiping God was meant to recognize our own failure and filth and come to Him with broken hearts, contrite spirits, seeking mercy, finding forgiveness, and saving grace. Instead, it all became about work, performance, rituals, instead of honest brokenness for sin. Instead of looking to God for salvation and for cleansing. Instead, they looked to themselves. They didn't trust in God. This morning, just ask a simple question. Which one are you? Have you busied yourself with good works and religion in an attempt to scrub yourself clean? And we prayed that confessional prayer together as we just read through that and Garrett walked us through very slowly. That's so just one, one painful realizing at a time. I've done that. I've done that. I still do that. I still do that. When I recognize how filthy and dirty and, and disgusting and defiled I am, what do I do? Many will try to wash themselves. Clean themselves up enough to make God pleased. Have you believed the lie that you could ever clean yourself enough to stand before God pure, righteous? Well, if that's you, come, you sinner, lost and hopeless. Jesus' blood can make you free. For He saved the worst among you when He saved a wretch like me. And I know, yes, I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. I know Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And if you have seen Jesus, the only way to be cleansed, you've seen that He is God, the the Son of God as we looked at last week, and what that means and why that matters to us. Are you still living in that dependence on Him? Or have you fallen back into a tradition of performing and maintaining the holiness that we were given by grace? Have our actions or our traditions led others to believe that grace is earned? That it's achieved by following a set of rules, by avoiding certain things and doing others? Friends, nothing we do will make us able to stand before God. Not then and not now. No set of strict rules in my life is going to keep me from being defiled. It is only the work of Christ and what He does in my heart and in my life that both makes me clean and keeps me clean. Only Jesus can make a sinner clean.